it's the same way. Yeah, yeah. eating is the same way. It's like, yeah. I guess I'm having more non-fat cottage cheese because, <laughs> you know, I don't have any cookies in the house even though yeah. I don't want one right now. <laughs> so that is a good strategy and it usually works. However, for me, for some reason, it did not work for the giant thing of uh, sardines I bought from Costco. Oh, like, well, come on. Or anchovies. It was anchovies, not sardines. But I was like, I was Are like, oh, supposed to be healthy? Dude, they're a fantastic snack. They're, like they're super easy, packed with protein. It's just, I don't know, there's something a little bit unpleasant about opening it up and seeing these like dead <laughs> Welcome to the Ember Map podcast where we discuss design and development in the world of Ember.js. Uh, I'm Sam. I'm Ryan. And today we're joined by special guest uh, Tom Dale. Welcome, Tom. Thank you guys for having me. Good <laughs> Thanks to be for coming here. by. So, how's New York been treating you, man? You seem like you're, you know, you're, you still, you look good. Thank you. Uh, you don't look 10 years older, even though you've only lived in New York for a year. No, although sometimes I feel like the air is not good for my skin. You know? I feel like I break out more in New York. <laughs> you're, you're radiant, Tom. Thank you. Well, I did, I did moisturize this morning. Oh, uh, I knew I was coming on to be on TV. <laughs> moisturize. Um, yeah, it's, it's great. There's like such a, an energy to the city. And I don't know, man, it's cool being in New York. I get to like, I get emails from like Jeremy Ashkenaz. Be like, hey, let's, let's, we'll go have lunch in Bryant Park or... Uh, Rich Harris works on Roll Up. So I'm like, hey, you're like a few blocks away right. from me. Why are why don't we like hang out and get a coffee? It yeah. is amazing how many people live here. I mean, yeah. it's and people pass through too. People I think pass through. That's the thing I miss the most about about Portland is that um, like it was a it was a cool scene, but there were so many people that I didn't really get to see very much because they didn't have a reason to go to Portland for for work. But I feel like so many people in tech in our community. Whether they're coming to New York or like New York or San Francisco are the two places right. people tend to be for business for whatever that, that you know they need to do or the places that you might go to visit friends for fun. Like that, so, yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, that's great. Um, so you've been working at LinkedIn for how long now? It's just over a year because, uh, well, I, I remember I did my interview the day after the election which was the first interview I've ever done on literally zero sleep. So that was, that was cool. So, uh, <laughs> were you in New York for, for the election? Uh, I voted in the morning and got on a plane right after to fly out. Um, so it's been, yeah, it's been just over a year, which is like a good, it's a good amount of time to get some stuff done. Absolutely. Like, I'm sure you've been working on lots of different things at LinkedIn. I know there's like a lot of Ember developers there. I'm sure there's lots of different projects going on. Um, What's been the main focus of your work at a high level over the last year? The thing for me that I've been most interested in is, you know, I think Ember is probably the most productive tool for building web applications, but it tends to be best for things that maybe are like running on a desktop computer uh, or running for people who have broadband or running what we might call like, like workspace applications, like a Gmail where you log in and you're kind of just in for maybe not the rest of the day, but you know you spend half an hour using an app, Google Docs, Gmail, stuff like that. That's yeah, that's totally been our experience. And I think it's a, like if you're building an app like that, it is again, in my opinion, I'm a little biased, but like by far the most productive framework for doing that, uh, and probably the safest bet long term, uh, based on the the track record of JavaScript frameworks. I think we're the only ones that have credibility here. <laughs> I mean, what, yeah, what we say sometimes it's like Ember's been around for six years and it's going to be around for six more years. Yeah, absolutely. Like, you know. Yeah. And um, every time people start to count us out, they're like, "Oh, it's like old. Oh, the industry has shifted too much. We always mix it up." You know, like yeah. actually, you know, a actually we anticipated this and here's the plan. 
Um, so I, I think for me, the thing that has been most interesting is, um, one, I, I think that we are definitely not meeting the needs of people who need to deploy web applications for the mobile web, for like smartphones and maybe even tablets. And particularly in emerging markets like India and China, these are places where you have people who maybe have never even been on the web before. And now they're, they're joining the web and the way that they do that is through their smartphone, right? So most, I think in the West, we tend to think of a smartphone as kind of this uh, auxiliary device, but when you do real work, you do it on your desktop. Mm -hmm. uh, but for a huge chunk of the world, that's just not true. Mm -hmm. And we need to meet those people's needs and make sure that we can deliver apps that work for them. The side benefit is, like, by the way, if you make an app that works on one of these crappy Android phones, it's going to be really awesome on your right. like seventeen-inch MacBook Pro or whatever. Right? Uh, do they still make seventeen-inch MacBook Pro? I don't think they do. <laughs> so that's not uh, your. Uh, your they, they, you dated you yourself. Your twenty-seven-inch iMac Pro. There you go. It'll really scream on that. Um, so, I think that there were just a lot of assumptions that we could make when we were targeting desktop browsers with broadband. That those assumptions don't really hold, uh, you can't get away with them right. uh, on the mobile web. So uh, I've been thinking a lot about like, how do we take, how do we build apps? How do we kind of like call, how do we, how do we cut the fat? Mm -hmm. uh, and it's tricky because you can, you can trim the fat and that's what people try to do. But if the problem is well, you can't send, there's like some threshold of code that you can send and then that's it, right? Like after a certain threshold, it's like, well, you're now out of code. It is too slow. So even if you are a bright person, you know, who knows how to design things well, it's you kind of have a budget. And so you have this budget and then it, there's not really clear guidance on like, okay, well, what happens after that? Okay, I guess we're done with the app. No more features, right? right? Like, it's not right. going to fly. Yeah. Uh, I, I would get fired. I, I assume most people will get fired for <laughs> being like that. No, no features. Yeah. Um, and, that, and to be honest, like, that's doing a disservice to your users as well, right? Because you want to be delivering features that make their life better. And I talk to a lot of people who say, you know, this obsession with load time performance and file size is, it's like a good conversation to have. But at the end of the day, I would rather have an app that's maybe a little bit slower, but right. does more. It's right? almost like it, it's almost like we've already moved through the phase of having useful software introduced into our lives, and so now we're at a point where it'd be nice if it was faster. Right. But at the beginning, it's yeah. like having Excel or not having Excel. Yeah. Well, is give what, me Excel, even if it's slow. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, we talk about this all the time. Like, would you rather have double the revenue, but you have to double your the file size of your JavaScript app? Right. And I think every every owner of like any company would say yes. yes. Right. Yes. Triple triple the yeah. size right, of right, JavaScript right. application. Yeah. Even I, if you lose some people, but you get some big people yeah, who are high yeah. value or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Right. There's a it's a it's yeah. not. Um, so I think the trick is okay. So maybe you can get away with that in the U.S. And maybe your whole business strategy is well. Let's bet on the fact that hopefully folks will get faster devices and faster networks. Then yeah. um, that's I, I think that's a valid strategy perhaps, uh, but. I think realistically, if you are a bigger company and you've kind of reached market saturation in the US and you've reached market saturation in Europe, I mean, China and India, these are very juicy markets, you know? So if you care about revenue, at some point, you're gonna wanna have to care about these markets, I think, if you wanna continue to grow. And uh, I, I think the thing that ends up being cool is uh, there is also this 
massive shift happening behind the scenes. And I think people are starting to detect that something's happening, but it's not really obvious what a tidal wave of change is, is happening, which is that, um, you know, I've, I've always described the browser as being kind of like this operating system. It's like a, it's like a secure operating system that lets you download and run third-party untrusted code. But if you think about what an operating system does and you think about what a browser does, there's a lot of similarities exposed, like APIs for accessing files, exposed APIs for accessing hardware, on yeah, hardware like camera, memory management, all this stuff, right? Uh, processes, web, mm -hmm. web workers, and mm -hmm. so on, networking. Um, so all of that has kind of been uh, coordinated with JavaScript historically, mm -hmm. but we're moving to a world where you have primitives like WebAssembly that let you run things in a way that is much more literally like an operating system, right? Because now, you're, now your code is giving instructions to the browser at a level. It's not just like allocate this variable and create an object. It's like allocate this slab of memory and put some bytes here and munge the stack in this way. That is, that is kind of like a, a game changer. And I think for the, for the context of the discussion we're having now about mobile web, emerging markets, et cetera, I think most people think of WebAssembly as like, cool, I will be able to run like Unreal Engine. Unreal Engine, yeah. You know, like, <laughs> that's, what, that's what I think about when yeah. I hear whenever It's I hear like, cool, oh, there's like, there's like certain categories of things that require a high degree of computation, like cryptography, right? Or like video codecs. And now I'll be able to run them at a speed that makes them realistic in the browser. And I think that is a, an important use case. But to me, the more exciting thing I think that will impact more people is that WebAssembly just simply parses and gets up and running much faster than JavaScript does. So there was a, that recent post by Lynn Clark from Mozilla where Firefox now has WebAssembly parsing faster than network I.O. So it will parse the WebAssembly that comes in faster than it will come in over the network, which means that it is effectively free. There, for all intents and purposes, there is no parse step because as soon as it comes in from the network, it's done. Um, Before it even finishes coming in from the network? Right, so it's a streaming parser. And then as it gets a chunk of WebAssembly, wow. it can parse it. Because there's JavaScript is a highly contextual language. You can't actually start really parsing it until you have the whole file. Okay. But with WebAssembly, so. it's much easier to parse it in chunks. In chunks. Wow. Um, so kind of taking a step back. So you were kind of making the point that we were, we've been able to push modern hardware to, our, you know, to its limits. And we can keep eking things out of it, but... If you're thinking about China and India, if you're thinking about places that don't have high-performance desktop computers, um, you have to think about another way to get a featureful app to these people, right? And so, um, whether it's WebAssembly, whether it's um, uh, using other static tools, you know, bytecode instead of JavaScript, or all of these these things. Um, at a high level, is that kind of what your argument is? Like, well, I, there's a there needs to be a shift in how people are thinking about how to evolve how we build web apps. I, I think there I think there needs to be a shift. I think that shift is happening now. Um, before, I mean, we had to kind of bootstrap the the tool chain ourselves, right? There, mm -hmm. it's, it's the web. It's open. It's freewheeling. And I think most importantly, and this is. I think a, a, it's it's good, but it's a, it's also there's it's a double-edged sword. With it, right? Well, I would say there's just no one controls it, so right. no company will is 
incentivized to invest in it in the way, for example, that um, Google invests in like the Android SDK and the IDE, or the way that Apple invests in uh, like UIKit and Xcode. There's no equivalent to that um, on the web, and I think that's a good thing. But it does mean that we kind of have to bootstrap this toolchain ourselves in the open source world. And you go in the wrong direction sometimes, and people realize that certain things don't work out. Yep. It takes a longer time. And there's just there's just a bootstrapping process, right. right? So the stuff that we can get away with now because we have very refined tools like like Babel and TypeScript right. and, and and even I, I'll give a lot of credit to, to Webpack, you know, because I think there's two strategies. One is you can make things faster in absolute terms, which is the stuff that like WebAssembly is good at. I think Glimmer is is a good example of this mm -hmm. of you kind of have a, like a little bit of like a, a paradigm shift that lets you model it in a way that will execute faster just in, right. in absolute terms. But then there's also a matter of being smarter about when the work happens. So instead of just dropping this, I'm going to handwrite all this JavaScript, I'm going to run this very naive script that just concatenates everything together. Maybe I run like this naive minifier. Mm -hmm. Okay. Here's a big blob of JavaScript to run, and you're going to get all that JavaScript whether you need it or not. And the only way you can make that faster is if the whatever is responsible for executing the JavaScript gets faster. So if if all you want to do is make like here's this blob of JavaScript, please do it faster, faster CPUs, faster right. networks, right. faster JavaScript engines. Those things help a lot, but you do reach a point of diminishing returns. I think, especially like in the in the U.S., it's hard to imagine smartphones getting like dramatically dramatically faster. Right. right? And I think at that point you have to say, well, let's be smart about the order in which we send this code to the browser. Let's right. be smart about the order in which we do things. A lot of it is perceived performance too, right? right? So, right. Mm -hmm. so I have a question. Kind of the way I think about this is like you have someone who just knows HTML and CSS and they can write an HTML and CSS file and put it on a content server somewhere and serve it up. You know, they're thinking at the top level, yeah. the thing that's the last thing to be read and rendered to the screen. And then as you go down, you have JavaScript, then you have these things you're talking about, WebAssembly, computer hardware. And you know, if you look at like a multi-year period where the hardware is getting faster, maybe what you do what the people who are working up here are doing is not changing. So you know, you're focused on um, writing JavaScript you know more efficiently or not even more efficiently but better design you're thinking about JavaScript architecture application mm -hmm. architecture or patterns or frameworks like Ember but um, as these things down here start to change my question is what's the interaction there so is there a time where because these big things at the bottom go through large kind of um, they go through fit like there's a new era of right. what's underneath is that going to affect what, what goes on up here and are people going to need to be kind of aware of it well I think it, it depends. And this is why, all things being equal, I prefer to use technologies, languages that are, are more declarative, mm -hmm. less imperative. So the W3C has this the document about the, the rule of least power, right? mm -hmm. which is basically saying that given the constraints, always pick the language that gives you less freedom to, to dis tell the computer how to do things and just say what you want done let the computer and the system interpreting that figure out the best way to do it. I remember you talking a lot about this a couple of years ago when I was first getting into Ember um, and there was this question about, you know, I need to do some function that doesn't exist in the handlebars and now I have to make a helper. Yep. And what, why am I doing this? Yep. And a big part of the answer had to do with this. Yeah, and I, and I think it's, it's paid off. Yeah, so because it, that's what I was going to say. I mean, you have, a whole, you have a whole population of Ember apps that 
had the rendering engine change underneath them. And Ember, like Ember has shifted three times now, right? So yeah. the first one was it was string concatenation where we just concatenate these strings together. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of like the, that was the way things were done at that, in that era because DOM access in IE was so slow. So you had to concatenate strings because mm -hmm. that was the only way you're going to get decent performance out of IE6, which mm -hmm. seems like an insane constraint yeah, now, right? Yeah. But, <laughs> uh, but it, was, it was true. Yeah. Uh, that was the whole, like we, like in the iCloud apps, mobile me apps I worked on at Apple, like the whole point was to run in IE7 so we could support Windows users. That was like the whole point of having these web apps. Mm -hmm. um, Interesting. So then, okay, now IE, IE6 and 7 kind of fade out and now we have fast DOM APIs. So now Ember is able to switch to this DOM-based rendering engine, which has been really great for security, by the way. That's like, I don't think we've had any security issues, uh, any security bugs in Ember since the move to, to DOM, which is like, so that from a security perspective alone, it was worth it, mm -hmm. and performance as well. Mm -hmm. um, we, so we shifted from string-based templates to then, okay, now we're going to compile it into JavaScript and the JavaScript is going to emit DOM. So under the hood, like the internals were completely redone, like completely rewritten, and yet your Ember app stayed the same. Right. Um, and then now we have this third progression to Glimmer, where instead of just compiling it into JavaScript, which has, as we are talking about, like parse costs, right. uh, we compile it into this bytecode. We basically say, oh, hey, it looks like Handlebars is actually like a functional programming language. Let's write a compiler that treats it like a functional programming language, compile it into bytecode, kind of like how the Java compiler compiles Java into JVM bytecode, um, and that will parse much faster, and it also executes a lot faster. Um, and that is, it's pretty amazing to think that a framework from like 2011 can make it all the way now to 2018 and now we are on track to, at some point, have the internals of Glimmer be all written in WebAssembly, like a very low-level language, right? And, right? and if you think about your application when it comes to like startup costs, interaction, the vast majority of your time is dominated by rendering, right? Like, okay, we download this JavaScript, we gotta render something to the screen. That process of generating the DOM, figuring out what to wire up, that takes up the vast majority of the time you're gonna spend, right? So it makes sense that, to, to have that, that. be able to be moved and yeah. have the, like, the APIs on top be something that can be just declarative and right. minimal. Yep, and say like, here's what I would like to render based on the current set of technologies in the browser, on the web. Right. Do that in the most efficient way that you can. It's super interesting because a lot of times we talk about declarative programming and, and I like it because it lets me describe the states my app can be in. Yep. And I don't have to think about like, how do I go, you know, especially if there's like three or four states, I don't have to think about all the transitions. I just yep. have a template with a few if statements. But I'm, I'm not even thinking, like, when I'm writing application code, I'm not even thinking about how you're going to, in two years, completely right. change a rendering. And, and you know, to be honest with you, it's a hard argument to make to people, unless you've been around to experience well, it. Well, that was my question, and I was wondering if it was going to be a little bit of a tangent, but we're talking about, you know, how the lower level stuff affects the higher level stuff, but the, the, the benefit of being able to change underneath the hood for seven years, I feel like, is not something, that's not something that's talked about that's one of Ember's biggest strengths, and it's I not really so. something that yeah. uh, is, is, I mean, it's talked about, but it doesn't resonate the same way as, look how fast you can yeah. do this new thing with yeah. this new tool. Yeah. And so my one of my questions was gonna be like, yeah, I don't know, what are your thoughts on that? 
Um, I mean, it's just a, it's a it's a it's hard just the sell, nature right? of the thing that the benefits accrue over years of work. You and don't research know what's going to change, right? If you had yeah. asked me in 2011, well, okay, what I wouldn't have told you. Oh, we're going to rewrite the rendering engine twice, and we're going to be using WebAssembly because the idea of WebAssembly didn't even exist. It seems so far fetched right. in 2011. So I, it's like, but the, the, the only thing you know as a mature engineer. The only thing that you know is that change is this constant, right? right. So if you can optimize for those right. contextual changes, you can do a little bit better of longevity. But and there's principles like the the rule of least power, which right. have proven themselves and are maybe good bets to place. Right. So like I can't um, tell you why it's going to be a good idea, but I know that if things change, it will give us right. power to react to them. And every application developer knows that that you want to write code that's easy to refactor. Right, yep. so like not even thinking of like the framework or anything. Just when I write, when I'm working on my applications, I'm thinking about that. So I think they, I think you can sell this idea of it maybe. Is I mean, it's just it if you go back and you say, you know, like okay, now take your Backbone app and port it to WebAssembly. It's like right. not going to happen, right? right? And <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense. Right. But it's true. But it's a, it's a hard sell. But I think I think it's okay, right? It's like the same reason I didn't like my mom telling me to eat my broccoli. It feels like. Uh, you know, it feels like an eat your vegetables argument. Yeah. Like you can't tell people like, hey, you know what? This is unpleasant. You're going to need to refactor, and so you better set yourself up to be able yeah. to do it now. Yeah. I think the way to do it is um, it, stuff like this, like Ember stability without stagnation, yeah. this, the longevity and the stability, those are things, the RFC process, yep. these are things that are a cherry on top, right? So yep. it's, like, it's, like the, it's like the Pepsi challenge, right? You know? You got to make sure that that first sip is sweet enough to get people to stick around. Yep. Otherwise, I, I you know, you need it. It's stupid, but you persuade people with emotional yeah. arguments and or not even arguments, but conveying that emotion. I think another way to say this is that people do judge a book by its cover, yeah. and that's just for better or worse. That's the reality of it, and so you want to be thinking about you know when someone first hears about this thing, this idea behind this thing of yours. They see it on on a tweet. What is what does it say? What is it what is it like? Once they click the link, what is it like? And yeah. I think that's something that Ember could learn from the frameworks that have had the luxury of being created in the last couple of years, yeah. because those have had the benefit of seeing, you know, they have a very modern design focus on onboarding things like that. And yeah. so um, it's this idea of like progressively disclosing the power of what you're using, but the first touch point is fairly simple. And I think. Yep. That's one of the parts that yep. makes maybe makes it hard for someone to start with Ember today. Yep. And I think it's it's important to stay away from this mindset of like, uh, well, they, like they just don't get it. They're going to regret it. They like they don't understand. Yes. Um, you can either you to poo poo what their yeah. experience as a first time yeah. with the framework is because you can either wring it's your hands and say, say like, oh, experience. they'll like they they should really know. They we need to educate them. They they're. Uh, you know, acting against their own economic interests, right? right? Like right, that, right, they claim right, that. Right. Uh, but I think the reality is that they had an emotional reaction. Yeah. Validate it, understand it, and you can embrace that, right? Mm -hmm. If you if you believe strongly in these ideas, if you believe strongly in in some of the ideas that I think underpin Ember in terms of like governance and so on, the best way to share those with the world is to build something that everyone's super excited to use and kind of just show the lead by example, right? Once they're once they're there, like once they show up, you can kind of lead by example, right? Which is why I think performance is so critical because there's nothing more visceral than performance. And another thing I realized is that um, humans are subject to many biases and uh, and logical fallacies, right? I, we all do it. 
And I think one of the most powerful is like availability bias, right? You tend to just like quickly sample what, okay, what comes to mind when I think of this and what comes to mind when I think of mm-hmm. this and I, uh, okay, now I somehow compare these. You're not mm-hmm. doing like a in-depth evaluation and weighting of all the factors, right? Mm-hmm. And the thing that's tricky is that people, because of that, people are really drawn to objective measures mm-hmm. because they'll say like, well, it's, yeah, this thing's hard to measure, but this objective number is the best thing that we've got. So performance is very objective, right? You have a hard number, you can run a benchmark, it's statistically rigorous, it seems like, hey, this is a rigorous... It's also really easy, right? Easy. You can just, in a yeah. day, right. you know, compare a yeah. whole bunch of different frameworks. And on the flip side, like, mm-hmm. how do you rigorously compare or measure productivity, for example? Mm-hmm. And the thing I realized is that the thing I, I've got such a... The reason I've got such a bee in my bonnet about performance mm-hmm. is I realized that if you are appreciably slower, you are always going to be on defensive footing. And now somehow, if I want to convince you that the productivity of the thing I'm offering is worth a performance penalty, now somehow in your head, you have to translate the abstract fuzzy productivity benefits that I'm selling you versus the very concrete absolute performance numbers. And you're just going to lose. Right. Yeah, it's fuzzy. So you're going to be like, people are going to be able to convince you, like someone else might say, like, oh, there's actually not a lot of productivity. And you might be like, okay, maybe there's not. And And you're like, okay, this thing is one second slower. So how much productivity units do I need for this one second? Like, what's it's it's just you put people in in an impossible situation to make the right decision. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I might push back a little bit. And I think it also kind of depends on who your audience is. Sure. But, um, uh, you know, when I talk to friends of mine who aren't developers and they have their handful of homepage apps that they use, um, this is one thing I think that maybe gets uh, maybe that gets lost in the web debate just be, because what's the experience of users who aren't thinking about parse times, right? Sure. Or, or what's yeah. their experience? Well, I mean, obviously Rails is popular, right? So performance isn't that important. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's a, but that, Rails is a good example, right? But that is a good example. Yeah. So, so if I have a friend who has, you know, you need a budget app and they love it and yeah. they open it and they do something while it opens, but they don't care because if there was an app that was 10 times as fast, it wouldn't matter because they love what's behind the loading spinner. I sure. I, I think I think it would matter, right? Like I think, of course, all things being equal, if you have the exact same app that loads in one second, one. But loads that's the thing seconds. is that I think going back to his point though, like you're you're about to start a new pro- project, and you're comparing all that's, these things, and you're not thinking about the guy in two years from now that's going to open the app and be delighted. You're thinking about the table of render times, right? The the enterprise comparison table of yeah. your available things. Yeah. I mean, performance is a feature, right? Like, yeah, I, I, there, there absolutely is a, a reality of, for example, like the a project that I've been working on has build times that are like about a minute. Like, you may save a save a file, run a build, it's like a minute, and that dude, sucks. I mean, yeah. I yeah. I get so distracted yeah. debugging stuff. Like, I just I forget what I was doing a minute yeah. later, and maybe that doesn't reflect well <laughs> on me. But at the same time, it's like sure. the reality is if I have rebuilds that are like under a second or a second or two, I my productivity is much higher. Absolutely. Absolutely. Super fast feedback loops. Yep. Yep. The, here's a point I'll make. It, it's, uh, it's a false dichotomy, right? You don't have to choose. I think a lot of people, 
part, one thing that has really uh, has really chafed grinded your gears has really uh, really <laughs> grinded my gears is part of the one of the frames that people use when talking about performance like web performance has been about uh, it, they kind of try to make it to a moral argument and say that you are uh, valuing your developer productivity and your developer experience over the user experience. And I, I don't like that frame because I think that they are not inherently in tension. And in fact, oftentimes the opposite. Oftentimes, it's, it's a ridiculous, it's a ridiculous statement. Like, your users might love your app, even if it's slow. So it's, right. it's saying you're valuing one over the other. It's just, yeah. yeah. I, but I think, like, just having, as we were discussing, I think declarative systems tend to be more productive, assuming that the, the abstractions are right. Right. Um, and those are also the things that are much easier to optimize over time. And I think that part of what we're doing with, with Glimmer and Ember and Bytecode stuff is saying, hey, if you have, if you write code that is very declarative, that tells the compiler what you want to do, I think, first of all, writing code that is clear enough for the compiler to understand what you want to do makes it a lot easier for humans to understand what you want to do. Um, but we can take that information and we can do some really smart optimizations with it. Mm -hmm. So. Mm -hmm. um, Probably a good idea. Yeah. There's a strong argument there yeah. for it. Yeah. Um, so, kind of been talking about your work over the last year. Um, uh, you know, between your and Yehuda's keynote last year, the progress we saw on Glimmer, where it is today. Um, you know, in the last month or so, we've, we've kind of heard Yehuda talk about uh, what his focus is for the next year, what he thinks the Ember community should focus on. Um, a lot of it involves kind of pulling back from things that got away, like um, directions that they thought the framework was going to take and maybe it turned out not to take. So there's this notion of like kind of cutting back, cutting things that are half complete or, or, or not all the way done and focusing on a couple of core things. So I wanted to ask you, um, like, what do you see 2018 for Ember? What do you see... You know, if you were talking to a room full of Ember developers at a company, um, and they were kind of interested in what it's going to look like for them over the next year, what? So I think 2018 is going to be a really exciting year for Ember developers because I think so. I think 2017 was also really exciting, but it was exciting because we were doing all this really uh, far-fetched experimental stuff with like the bytecode compiler and Glimmer and TypeScript and decorators mm -hmm. and all this stuff, right? And so it was exciting, but there was also kind of a sense of um, like that's exciting, but how does that help me, mm -hmm. right? And so I think what is exciting about 2018 is um, we've done the experiments. We have seen what works. I have shipped a production Glimmer app at LinkedIn and the performance is like shockingly good and now awesome. and but also you know LinkedIn has a ton of Ember apps like a lot of Ember apps and a lot of people who know Ember so now the question is okay we've done the experiment how do I get the fruits of your labor yeah like how do we upstream it and I think so I, there's always a tendency to think like well am I, am I just like going to get like left behind are they going to like abandon Ember you know and like Glimmer is the new hot thing but hopefully at this point we have a track record of that is not really how we roll. Right. And uh, I think it was important to unlock the experimentation. Because um, this is, I think one thing that happened in 2016 was we focused very hard on the stability without stagnation story. Mm -hmm. um, but we didn't have a strong 
avenue for doing experimentation. And if every idea you have has to go through this like RFC process right. and how you do it in a backwards compatible way, and then it ends up like it wasn't even that important or it wasn't the right thing, there's just a lot, there's like a high overhead to that. And it caused, and I think that led it's to stifling a feeling, the innovation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think people felt like, well, Ember's like falling behind, there's all stuff and we need to catch up. So Glimmer was kind of like, okay, let's create a laboratory where we can do these like wild experiments, see what Skunk works. Skunk works. Skunk works. works, yeah, there you go. Yeah, like uh, Los Alamos, right? Exactly. Right? <laughs> um, so, And that, then after it's proven, let's say, yeah, okay, now yeah. we're interested in this. Let's yeah. bring this back to... Right, because as we've been working, we've always had like an... It's not like, oh, oh shit, now how do we bring this back to Ember, right? right. It's like, no, we've, been, we've kind of been thinking as we go, what is going to be the vector to get this back? Right. Um, so, so this is something that like Godfrey uh, has been leading the charge on of of upstreaming um, the Glimmer components back into Ember. There's been a, a really super exciting, a really awesome effort. Uh, so we diverged the Glimmer VM like the API a little bit while we were turning on the or like working really hard on the the binary bytecode mm -hmm. compilation. And so uh, Chris Selden, Robert Jackson, and an engineer at LinkedIn named Stephen Foot have been doing a really awesome job of upgrading Ember to use like the very latest like master Glimmer VM with all the goodies from from Glimmer.js and that is basically done. They've got the test suite passing and they're just working through the last few last bugs. And so that means that like you know very, very literally by EmberConf, Glimmer.js and Ember are going to be sharing the exact same rendering engine. Wow. Um, so that that's that represents a big Merge yeah. from when they started, yeah. and this is like unification, and it's what will allow us to drop like drop a Glimmer component. Into, Ember components it's being rendered components. in the same engine. It's yeah, the same they're they're, the, they're just like small tweaks or configurations on top of the core rendering engine, and it's kind of, and Yehuda I know has kept this as a constraint during the design of we the Glimmer VM has this API called Component Manager. Component Manager is just like an object that. Effectively, the way I would describe it is it it implements the public API of the underlying component. So you could implement, for example, an API that would be very. You could basically re-implement React component API in Glimmer using Glimmer component. The only difference is it would have to use a handlebars template instead of having a render method. But other than that, you could have state. You could have uh, component did mount little receive adders. The whole, the whole thing is very low level primitive. Um, so I think that'll be really, really exciting, this kind of unification. And I don't know, I think we're also figuring out um, how, do we, how do we have a good way to keep that backwards compatibility without incurring costs for the folks who don't need it. So one of the initiatives that we've talked about a lot in the past, but is now actually like in the middle of being implemented for real is uh, Svelte. Svelte mode for Ember, which is tree shaking. Uh, it's not tree shaking. So tree shaking is like if you don't import this module, you won't get in your bundle, mm -hmm. and that is something that we're also working on. Mm -hmm. But I would say uh, tree shaking tends to work at the module level. Mm -hmm. But with Svelte, one of the big problems is deep in the Ember internals, mm -hmm. you'll have some conditional like if it's this old feature, do it this way; else, mm -hmm. do it this way. And that's the kind of thing that tree shaking can't really help you with. So Svelte is a way for us to annotate inside, in the internals, uh, hey, this is implementation code version. for this deprecated feature. 
Here's the okay, feature that almost almost like uh, Ember Assert when you're shipping it to production, yes. it just gets completely exactly. stripped out. Yes, exactly. That's super cool. So the guarantee that we I see. So it's similar in that you're using static analysis to strip out unused code, but yes. tree, tree shaking can't do it for this part of the code base just because right. it's too dynamic yeah. and it's not. Well, part it just doesn't of, know. It's not part of like it doesn't know like it's, it's not part code. of tree shaking. Yeah. So it's the the guarantee that we'll make to people is take your app. Put it a certain version of Ember, refactor it to make sure you get rid of all the deprecation warnings in the console. And as soon as you get rid of all the deprecation warnings, you can enable the Svelte mode and we'll Svelte out all of the code for those deprecated features that you're not using anymore. Uh, and I think uh, this, in combination with uh, removing jQuery as a strict dependency, is going to, I think people are going to be a little surprised at how small Ember gets. In interesting. That. Yeah. And then the next step that is being actively worked on right now is to move the Ember object model to ESX classes. And that's going to make a, a big, big difference because I think once you get rid of the jQuery and some of this code for deprecated features, I think the biggest thing left is the Ember object model because we implement our own mixing system, class, hierarchy, et cetera. And, and that didn't exist when Ember started, uh, but would, now it does. I, well, it, I would say it exists now in large part due to Ember and Yehuda yeah, marching into TC39. Because <laughs> you have to remember, before before Yehuda and others led this kind of this uh, revolution, there was not there were no practitioners right. on TC39. I mean, right. I've I've heard Yehuda right. say this years ago that that this this Ember object model is going to be the thing that yeah. you know could get yeah. classes in JavaScript. Yeah, and, and, and to be fair, it's not like we were the only framework that had a class implementation, so I, I you know, I don't want right, to take right. too much credit for it. But but the idea of getting it upstream into standard yep. ECMAScript yep. was yeah. And, and you see this too. You see Yehuda's involvement with uh, with decorators and modules and all sorts of stuff that we felt was an important part of the programming model when you're building applications and you're not just doing like DOM scripting. Right. That's stuff that we're starting to see in the language. Right. I have a question. If we go back to the the merging of Glimmer and Ember into into Ember, as like application developer, what does that mean for me? Like, do I change any of the way I write my components? Or uh, well, we will introduce the Glimmer component API, but because you have the core rendering engine, and then you have the the component manager for Ember components, then you have the component manager for Glimmer components. There is a different API for Glimmer components, right? So it's, it's a dramatically modernized. API just use ESX classes. You don't have to use .get and .set. You just use track properties. You know, this annotation via decorators. You have the so at syntax. You have no root. No stuff. root element that you configure in the component. It's all your, the way that we describe it is in an Ember component, a template is inner HTML, but in Glimmer component, the template is outer HTML. Mm. Um, so there's just some nice quality of life improvements in Glimmer components. But I mean, look like. The Ember component API as it exists today is going to be around for a very long time, right? Because uh, there's just so many apps. That's great, and I can slowly start people to refactor. Will, right. yeah. People will want to right. refactor. People will yeah. want to start using Glimmer. It's not yeah. like in order to use Glimmer, right. I have to do all this work. I can right. just cool. Yeah. And I until Robert Jackson writes a code model. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a there's a long tail of things that you'll probably have to do by hand if you do want to port. But I I just want to convey, I hope people don't. Get the message like, oh my god, I have to rewrite all my components because you should definitely not do that. Uh, there will almost assuredly be code mods for the simpler cases, right? Um, and then 
we'll keep this around for a very, very long time. It's so great that you get to experiment with it in an existing app. Yeah, you could just yeah. create a new component and just make it a Glimmer component and yep. play around with it. Yep. Is there a case where like uh, a Glimmer component would be a better use case than an Ember component, like in, inside an Ember app or, or vice versa, where you should uh, lean towards an Ember component? I mean, I would say for new components, you should lean towards Glimmer components. And the reason for that is there are semantics that we have put in place. There's design decisions around the Glimmer component API that were done for performance reasons. So there are a lot of lifecycle hooks in an Ember component that we have to invoke for compatibility that in practice no one really uses. And in Glimmer, we just don't invoke them at all. And I mean, Glimmer components generally, so for example, if you don't have a backing component class, if you have a component that is just a template, mm -hmm. we will super optimize that oh, cool. in Glimmer. So we don't create a backing class for you, uh, and we. Whereas an Ember component in, mem in memory class is created. Yeah, we still. always create yeah. this class. Yeah, and, and I think eventually what we'll be able to do is if you invoke a template, depending on how big it is and how many times you invoke it, just like in JavaScript, JavaScript VMs can inline functions we'll be able to inline a template so it would get compiled straight in and you wouldn't even have the cost of like invoking a component. It would just be splatted, inlined right into where you're invoking it. Interesting. That's, that's yeah. We were talking about this in the podcast last week. Miguel Canberra has been doing some work with build time, what he's calling build time components, yeah. which is an AST transform because he, he helped rewrite Ember Font Awesome to basically be completely compile time. And so you, have, you incur no runtime cost and you ship no JavaScript. Yep. Um, so that sounds like, is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, it's a kind of, I think a, a similar If you had idea, a Glimmer yeah. component that was just a template, you wouldn't need any of the, the, the in-memory representation of it. Right. Yeah. That's awesome. Just compile it in. That's just, amazing. Uh, yeah. And this is the advantage of having a, a, it's like a proper compiler. Yeah. I was, I was just thinking like, yeah, JavaScript is a compiled language. Like, yeah. Right. It just feels like such a compiled language. These right. Days. Yeah. Right. So, um, yeah, and that, and that kind of ties into um, what you've been talking about over the last six months in some of your conference talks, blog posts, where you're talking about how frameworks are really, they're really more, they're looking more and more like compilers than right. they are um, APIs for interacting with like JavaScript objects, yep. right? Um, and, you know, we were talking about this last week on the podcast. I was playing around with writing um, an ESLint plugin and a Babel plugin, which both do AST transforms, super interesting stuff. Like I haven't, I don't have a lot of experience with that. And it seems like, you know, again, based on your arguments and like where you see the frameworks going, like this is an important thing. This is going to yeah. be an important thing to, yeah. to kind of know and understand as someone who's building applications in this space. Yep. Um, so I wanted to ask, like, what do you think is important to know if you wanted to dive, if someone listening wanted to dive more into this, what are some of the most important aspects of compilers and static analysis that are good to learn about? And then also how could they contribute or, you know, learn yeah. more? Well, it's definitely, it's it's been a learning curve for me because, uh, you know, didn't get a CS degree, never, right. never took a compilers or operating systems class or whatever in school. So for me, it's kind of been like getting thrown in the deep end a little bit, but Best the, way to learn sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And the cool thing is, like, there are so many great resources now. Like on the on the internet, there's so many tools and and guides and books that will show you the way. You know, um, 
But I think, so the way that it's probably easiest and most helpful to get started is like you were saying with a tool like, like Babel or TSLint that operates in terms of a, an AST or mm -hmm. an abstract syntax tree. So there, a compiler, of course, has multiple phases. So for example, in the Glimmer compiler, we take a template and the template goes into a parser. The parser generates the AST. The AST, this tree is just like, basically like a, a machine representation of the source code that you typed, right? So it resembles the code that you, the source code you typed, but it's in this object graph instead of a string. A string. So if you had like, if you had ds.hasmany in one line versus ds.hasmany on the ne next line, yep. the string representation, those would be hard to differentiate, but once right. they're pulled into an abstract syntax tree, right. you can just say this is, has many is an invocation off yeah. of a DS object, and right. you just know that. Yep. So I think, so that part is very useful because one, there's a lot of great tooling around it. So you have, uh, so Babel is, uh, Babel is one of the more popular parsers for JavaScript. There are others like Acorn. Um, you also have TypeScript compiler exposes an API for accessing in TypeScript not just the, the AST, the syntax tree, but also an API for accessing type information, which gets like really cool. <laughs> Interesting. So that's going to be parsing. That's why TypeScript needs its own parser, because right. the input is different. And so it needs to understand right. the type definition. Right. And it also needs to know when two classes and different files point at the same thing. Mm. Right? So it kind of tracks this type information. And, Interesting. It, and it also does a little like flow analysis. So it can see, oh, here's a variable called name, but I don't know what type it is, but then I see on the next line you say name equals uh, Ryan, right? It's a string. Okay, this is a string. And now you have to actually go back and mark that thing that you saw before as being a string, right? Ah, so it goes it goes that's deep, man. super cool. Yeah, Interesting. Cool. Um, so I, I, I was having fun. Like I said, this is like a new world for me. I've never worked in or adjacent to a type system or even the ASTs really. Um, so over the weekend, I was cool. I was hacking on uh, TypeDoc, which is this open source project for generating API documentation for TypeScript projects, and it was I mean it was really fun, right? Because it's like okay, you have these data structures that ah. describe not just the code, but then like the the relationship between them and the types and all this information, and and then okay, well how do we turn that? How do we try to generate like really high readable quality, documentation. readable documentation for a human. And it turns out, by the way, that having type information is super freaking useful. Like how many times have you looked at a variable and been like, is oh, yeah. this an object, is it a type? And even worse in JavaScript, half the time it's like, well, it could be a Boolean, or it could be a string, or it could be an options hat, right? Like, oh, God. <laughs> so you end up spending so much time going back and like, okay, tracing this flow in this code base you don't know, like, okay, how did this get in here? And right. versus TypeScript where you just like hover over the, the word and it's like, oh, here's the type. That's really cool. So useful. So uh, there's, a, there's a ton of stuff available. Um, and I'm sure... Uh, it sounds like maybe the best way is to just, I mean, find something that's motivating to you and then just dive in because... I feel like code mods are a highly motivating yeah. example. Yep. Um, which is, I think, where I... Those are the kind of thing where I really had to cut my teeth on the Babel API because it wasn't... You can read it and be like, okay, I think I understand. But then writing a code mod really is a good exercise in forcing you to make sure. What um, what was an example that you did of a code mod? The code mod in this case was I wrote this RFC for the uh, JavaScript module API. 
-hmm. where instead of doing like ember dot component to use the global, you can import component from ember slash component. And obviously that's the kind of stuff uh, that is just super annoying if you have to go rewrite your whole app to use from the Ember global to imports. It's such a rote task that it's not hard. It's just so annoying. Yeah. And, and those are the kind of tasks that are really well suited for code mods. So mm. like, uh, code mods like having a free intern, basically. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> so you wrote that and then, yeah. and then you can just run your entire app through it and then it changes it over. Yep. Nice. Yeah, I think we ran that. I think right. we did run, run it too with update. Yeah. yeah. Hopefully, hopefully, hopefully it went well. <laughs> yep. So I wrote the initial spike, but a bunch of people fixed bugs in it. So if it works sure. well, probably I'll give credit <laughs> to those folks, not me. That's cool. Um, yeah, I, I think that, I mean, that's how I started learning about it, right? It's like we were working on one of our libraries and um, we there's an API that you can opt into. And I really wanted to show the user, if you're a hypothetical user of our library and you opt into this feature, you want to know at compile time whether you're using it correctly or not. I was like, why would we, you know, we could try to monkey patch some uh, global runtime yeah. thing so that when you hit it, it's like how you see a deprecation, right? Yeah. It's like if you're using a deprecate, if you if you're using a deprecated API, you don't see it until it gets called. Right, but it would be better to just yeah. have a message yeah. from the compiler saying, yeah. don't call yeah. uh, this anymore. Yeah. So um, it seems like that's maybe the way we're headed too. Like I would imagine, I wouldn't be surprised if more. Yep. deprecation messages were that. I mean, it's yep. simpler to just do it on the object, yep. but if you can do it in the compiler. Yep. Um, the benefit of the compiler is one, like you said, you get this like early feedback at the compile step and you don't have to you know, pray wait for a minute build, you call it. You know? And oh, like a customer sees this error because they're right. using an API, like that sucks. But I think perhaps even more importantly, doing it at runtime incurs a cost on every single person. But if you can detect problems ahead of time by looking at the AST, for example, then you can do that once at build time and remove that cost from, from the user at, at, at runtime. Um, and to me, that's one of the coolest things. For example, um, when we integrated Glimmer, the rendering engine, into Ember, so when we like did the, the rendering engine rewrite, there were several features that we didn't support natively in Glimmer. And we could have said, okay, we're gonna go in and we're going to add these extra features to Glimmer. But it was mostly syntactic. Can you give an example? Uh, so one example of this is uh, with each, mm -hmm. it, with the each helper in Glimmer, it requires a key parameter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the key parameter just tells the system if you have like a list of things, has it changed between renders or not? So if like you have a, a model with an ID field, if it moves in the list, you don't wanna re-render it, you just wanna move it. Right. right? Um, so Glimmer mandates a key uh, attribute or argument, but but Ember doesn't, right? right. Like, for backwards right. compatibility, we can't just like break everyone's each loops in right. the template. It's not going to fly. Right. <laughs> so we could have just been like, okay, I guess we'll have to like go add this feature to Glimmer. But instead, uh, Ember internally has a suite of AST transforms for templates that we run every time we compile your app. Most people probably don't even know this is true. Uh, but we will go rewrite your template from the the syntax that you wrote into the syntax that is compatible with Glimmer. And so now we don't have to add a bunch of features or add runtime support for this. We just, at build time, transform it into this. To what it needs to be. Yeah. Wow, that's awesome. So yeah. if, I, if I write an each loop without, I don't have that key parameter, because yeah. none, none of my each loops do. Yeah. What does it get rewritten into, like key ID? Or? Uh, I think it uses the index. The like index. The index. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. 
So it's a way to sneak. It's almost like, and you're really not looking at the code that you've written in some sense. Right. But I guess yeah. never it are. the same, right? Right. Yeah, it yeah, behaves yeah, the same. Yeah. So from your perspective, it's like that's you could really way. troll someone with this. You could. You could oh yes. Oh yes. <laughs> could, oh yes. They're like, um, yeah. I don't have yeah. an undefined variable yeah. called foo right yeah. here, but you just well, added you, it. You could imagine a good April Fool's Day joke, which yeah. is like, uh, have a random number generator, and like one percent of the time you like reverse identifiers or something, but it's different every compilation. Stuff, oh so my god! Like good luck debugging that. Yeah, it's good. ASTs are good for mischief. Too. Yeah, they so seem like it. Yeah. AST, it. Did you use AST Explorer? Yes, Net? I and I I found out about it too late. Yeah. I mean, I I I, I used it for the the node in the path part, mm -hmm. and then I would go back to my plugin and run the test suite and like. Mm -hmm deal with a node debugger, which I had a hard time with and like setting breakpoints and reload. Yeah. And then I realized right in AST Explorer, you can just click transform. Yep. And you can see, yep. not only can yep. you see the original source code and the AST, yeah. but you can also start writing an ESLint, an actual visitor, yeah. and then see if it passes ESLint, or you can write a visitor for Babel and see what the output result is. So yeah. that was... That was amazing to me. Yeah, AC um, Explorer I think is is such a cool tool because not only does it support JavaScript and have like this native integration with with Babel and and ESLint, ESLint. Uh, it has you can go so it's just like a website you go in and you can paste in source code, JavaScript, TypeScript, handlebars. handlebars. There's like a million different languages and it just shows you a, a graphical representation of what the AST looks like and it's a really interesting way if you're not if you're not familiar with this stuff at all even if you don't really know what's going on yet right you can still kind of like it's like getting to see the matrix you know right you absolutely absolutely no it's so true it's amazing too and it's just like also just how fast it is like yeah. the it's that notion of um like a reactive programming environment or um what's the word i'm looking for it's it's like direct manipulation yeah where so instead of do this yeah. and compile and then see yeah. it's yeah. like when you're drawing yeah. you know you just have the pen and the paper yeah. they talk about this um, I think the, like the creator of one of the iPad and an original iPad interfaces talked about how, you know, when you have a mouse and you, there's a disconnect between the input and the output, your brain does a translation step. But with the first touch screen and you're dragging things, it's much more intuitive. It's much less required to process and hold in your head. And so it's like you were saying earlier, when you have a minute build time step, you have to load so much in your head and you forget it. But like something like as simple as this AST Explorer thing where you're doing, you can move so fast and it made me think like, this is really what I want yeah. for my application development as well. Yeah. Where it's like something that's immediate and direct manipulation of what I'm doing. This is why I like the, the Glimmer Playground. I don't know if you've I used have it. This, yes. But Glimmer Playground is like, this is a Glimmer app I, I whipped up really quickly because I, I wanted to share examples with people. I wanted to see their output like of the compiler. Mm. And it was so annoying to be like, okay, let me create a new project right. and like open up VS Code and like run the compiler. Like that, that open up browser, the whole thing sucked, right? Right. So if you go to the Glimmer Playground, which is linked to on the Glimmer website, it's like, uh, so I just created this Glimmer app. And on the left, I embedded the same editor engine from VS Code called Monaco, which is all oh, written cool. in TypeScript. Oh, so cool. it actually runs, this is like, get this for mind blowing. It runs <laughs> the TypeScript language server that you get in VS Code in a web worker. So you can be typing and you get the full TypeScript language server, like type checking, autocomplete, it's super freaking fast. Why don't Super we just fast. code in our browsers then? Well, I think that is probably what will eventually happen. Because any of your app right there, think about developing a component, like a UI component. There's several just... of these now. There's like, there, what's the, what's the, there's like 
what do you call it, Sourcegraph or something? For React, the story. No, 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 no. It's like the it's like a, a GitHub browser that uses the VS Code interface. Oh, really? So oh, you can like just play with your code. You can get type information. It's oh, pretty cool. awesome, man. Just like point at a GitHub repo and you have VS Code in the browser browsing this this repo. Because wow. how many times this is that true for me? I'll be like poking around a TypeScript code base. And you want to just pull it into your yeah, editor. That yeah. means you have to clone it. and yeah, right, 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 right. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. yeah. It's pretty neat. Awesome. Um, why don't we wrap that up then? Um, yeah, that was a super interesting conversation. Thanks for coming by today. Um, I know folks are going to love everything we talked about. It was, I mean, it, it, it was interesting for us also. Well, it wasn't too rambling. No, no, <laughs> that's, that's, that's exactly what, I, what we were looking for. So. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, Tom, for coming. And uh, folks can see you at EmberConf in a few weeks. I mean, we'll be there. You'll be there, too. See so. me at EmberConf, hopefully. Yep. Hopefully I'm at EmberConf. <laughs> That'll be, be good. I'll see It'll be good for the community. Yeah, you know? it'll be good. Good show. <laughs> something's, something's really gone wrong if I'm not there. Uh, <laughs> All right, well, thanks for joining us today on the EmberMap podcast, and um, we'll see you next time. Thanks, guys. Bye. This podcast is sponsored by embermap.com, where you can find high-quality videos and blog posts made specifically for professional Ember developers. Sign up today to access all of our premium content updated weekly.